Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live in Ottawa, Ontario, where we have a look today at a book about women and the women activists of the 1940s, 1950s. We are pleased to have the author of From Left to Right, Maternalism and Women's Political Activism in Postwar Canada on the phone from Peterborough, Brian Thorne, who is an instructor in English and history at my alma mater, Nipissing University. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. So before we actually get into the book, I just want to talk a little bit about Nipissing because I really like it there. And I was there as we record this a couple of weeks ago doing doing a talk. And, and I'm just curious for you, because you're from southern Ontario, right? You, you live in Peterborough, yeah. but you make that you make that drive every week uh, to, to teach. What are your thoughts of Nipissing being in a not only a small city, but the nature of the school is a very small school? Right. I guess, like I said, the advantages are you, you get uh, a lot of personal contact with students in a way you don't really see at other bigger institutions. That, that's sort of the main advantage, and I, as I see it, that student, undergraduate students, land graduate students, for that matter, get a lot of personal time with their instructors. And there's more sort of a sense of uh, family feel at Nipissing in a way you might not see to the same degree at other places. Yeah, that's the, certainly sense I got, and it, it was weird because you know I came back after my third year. I was in Barbados. I did an exchange. I come back. Pretty much the whole history department had turned over, but yes. it took like three weeks to sort of get to know everybody. Whereas at a big school, you, you come back not knowing anybody in a department in your fourth year, it's going to be tough. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, there's a sense of community that um, you do see at other places, maybe not to quite the same degree. At least that's my um, sense of it. Right, because you're a you're a Trent alum, right? Uh, I did my doctorate at Trent, right. yeah, in, in the Canadian Studies program, which at the time was new. Now it's like 15 years old now. I think oh, 2001 was the, the year they first started accepting students. If I'm remembering. Okay, but but again, Trent is. I mean, it's a little bigger than than Nipissing, obviously, but it's uh, the sense I get from talking to people who went to Trent. Similar vibe, though. Yes, yeah, some somewhat. Trent's grown the last few years and under, undergone some changes uh, from what it used to be. But yes, it's, it's the same. It's the same kind of feel to it. Uh, with sort of a sense of community and get, students get, getting to know tenured faculty, like in a, in a way you wouldn't see it in the larger schools. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly, uh, you know, definitely, I think an advantage to students and for you, one of the things that came out of your studies is this book. So let, let, let's get into the book a little sure. bit from left to right. So it, it came out in 2016. Right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's, and right. that's right. It's based off of your dissertation, if I'm reading. It is. Right. It yeah. is with significant revisions. But yes. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that fun process of taking out the stuff that the academics want, but that the publishers don't. Right. Uh, it took and, me an embarrassingly long time from dissertation to book, like almost a decade. Not quite nine years, I guess, but long time. But that's okay. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, you know? for sure. Uh, so, but the idea of of looking at this. Uh, looking at women's activisms within the realm of, of motherhood, as the, the title sort of indicates, how, uh, with you just being a man, I mean, a lot of talk about issue, you know, women's issues and sort of who studies what, what gets you interested in that? And what was the reaction from your peers, professors, about you looking at this topic initially? Right, that's a good question. You know, I, I don't get to ask that as much as you might think, believe it or not, I, I guess. I guess, I guess the short version would be the long story. The short um, version would be sort of an interest in gender and gender roles, um, and women in history, of course, but also 
how these ideas of masculinity and femininity um, get shaped throughout history. It's sort of building on work like, like Joan Scott and Gender and the Politics of History back in, back in the 80s, which, which at the time was new, is now kind of a fairly common element of history. It wasn't um, the case in 20 or 30 years ago. And that, that, I guess that sort of um, interplay, I guess, between gender, between men and women's roles, that's what, that's what interests me in history, mm-hmm. in part. Like, that's the second point. Um, you know, I guess the, sh- the short answer would be there's not as much reaction to me being a man as you might think, not nearly as much. It just seems relatively accepted that I, that I would do something like that. I mean, again, I guess you have not to dwell on this too, too much, but a lot of, a lot of my jobs have been associated with teaching and re- research has been sort of on the side, like when I can get to it. So, so um, my focus has been on teaching, working with undergraduate students, and the research has been, has had to be secondary, uh, somewhat, right. unfortunately. Right. And that's sort of the nature of teaching at a place like Nipissing, right? The a teaching centric uh, institution. So with this, what, what I really like about this and, and sort of reading about the book is that it's not it's so often, I think when people talk or write about activism in the post-war years, it's very much from a left perspective and right. looking at sort of anti-war protests, not only during the war, but once you get to Korea and then obviously in the Vietnam era and, and everything that goes in that, the hippie movement, counterculture, all that kind of things. But you're looking also at political activism of women on the right as well. So I, yeah. wa- I want to talk about that. So, so you know, a lot of the, the talk during the war, immediate post-war is sort of pushed to the suburbs and people sort of retrenching a little bit, at least white people is sort of the stereotype. So what roles are women on the right playing in their activist communities? Okay, that's a good question. I, I guess in my book what I focused on in a way was what you, what you might think of as the radical fringe Right. In a way, so like social credit, which was a, a that was a dominant party provincially. They did they did run candidates federally, and they did have some success in electing people in Alberta. Um, but primarily, it was a provincial party in British Columbia and Alberta, where they were in power, and where you had um, a lot of activists and a lot of women who were involved at the grassroots, and to some extent as leaders too, but especially at the lower, so lower to mid levels, if you will, of the party. And I, I guess in a way, I guess the short version would be that the women on the right sort of dissented from sort of the centrist, what they perceived as the centrist ideology emanating from Ottawa. So in a, in a way similar to what women on the left did in, like in the Communist Party and in the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, in sort of in the somewhat the same way you see women on the right dislike, dislike the centrist ideology that was coming out of Ottawa. And they feel the federal government isn't paying attention to rural concerns and small town concerns. So in a way, women, women on the right um, centered themselves and presented themselves as being outside of the, of the norm in Canadian politics and based their, act, their ideology and their activism on that. So issues important, what they perceive as important to small town and, and rural women especially. So what would those sorts of issues be? Would you know, Are they largely financial and looking at taxes or are they more social issues? Right, okay, I give a, a bit of both with a short yeah. answer. Um, farming issues, so issues of well, I don't, I don't get it in the book as much, but issues of um, money and, and provinces like Alberta not getting enough money from Ottawa, for example, and issues important to farmers, and then also issues of war as well. So this is one way in which you see women on the right have some of the same concerns as women on the left, although it's stated in a significantly different way, is that war was seen as something very non-conservative for the men, too, especially, but for women on the right, they see, they see war as something emanating from the central state, something that, that's statist and something that... Uh, takes men away from small communities and therefore destroying small communities. So like, so like it's war and capitalism right. and big business. This is women on the right see this as, as 
negative elements elements of modernity. So they see sort of capitalism and war as part of the same process as destroying what the things they see as important religion, um, small communities, rural areas, that capitalism and war enemies of, of these things they see as important. Um, so, so it's yeah. really then sort of the this almost centralization of government and business that we see in that era that they're pushing back against. Yes, it, yes, very much so, very I, much so. As opposed necessarily to just the, the policies in and of themselves? Is it? Uh, that's a good question. A, a bit of a bit of both, a bit of both as well. Um, it's, I guess the, the issue is that you find that women that I study, that these are the provincial level and they're fighting to get people elected, men mostly, to the provincial legislature. So federal <laughs> issues get pushed aside a bit. But there's a sense that Ottawa is kind of a Sodom and Gomorrah, something very negative, something that they see as um, anathema to their sort of rural, small-town community. Right. But Ottawa is pushing higher taxes, centralization. It's pushing war and spending money on war. Um, and secularism to an extent like um the decline of religion some of the, the, the right-wing women really react against secular and what they perceive as modernity to big business highways um mining yeah same things that destroy rural what they perceive as destroying rural areas and small towns and, and the church to an extent the protestant church primarily right and how much does geography play a role i mean you mentioned that a lot of this is happening at the provincial level and pushed provincially, but just the separation of you know people in BC. I mean, Ottawa's a long way away. It's it's not like there's a connection either. Right. Does that matter in this in this story? Yes, that that's definitely it's definitely a factor. They're they're on they're on the fringe, like physically, like in, in politics, also in their ideology is, is perceived as being on the fringe, but also physically, where they're located in Canada. This this is. Um, yeah, they perceive that Ottawa, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, the centers of power are far away, and this is something that, that issues in the West do not seem important to um, what they perceive as the establishment, the powers that be, in big business and banking in, in Toronto and Ottawa. And, and how does the maternalism play into that then? I mean, what issues or, or how are they approaching this? And why would a mother, say, have a different approach or a different desire for things to happen than a father and, and what accounts for those differences with these women right that's a good question um i, I guess it's something that, that unites women on the left and the right is this the sense of motherhood that, that mothers women are the ones who reproduce the nation it's sort of like the old book nations are built of babies that the, the family was seen as by women on the left and the right actually i think maybe more so on the right that it's, it's the family is or symbolizes the Canadian nation sort of in microcosm, sort of on a small scale. So when the, the family is doing well, then, and by extension, when mothers do well, then the, the, the whole Canadian nation or the province will do well. So, so women see themselves as reproducing um, the future of society hmm. by, by having children. So if children are doing well, um, then society, Canadian society will do well, and mothers is the one to have and rear children mostly. That's how they perceive it. So therefore... When, when if children are doing well, the society does well, and mothers have to ensure that children are doing well, and therefore, and by extension, that Canadian society will succeed. Right, and their definition of doing well is what being sort of left alone by a, a big federal state, and sort of being being able to raise the children, raise the family, create the community that they want to, free from any outside influence. Yes, and and to, to almost to return a, a big thing, I focus on the book. Not as much I would have liked to, but to focus on God's will, return to the Bible, and this is Christ-centered worldview, this evangelical worldview. That's what it seems odd to us now in 2018, that seems to have faded a bit in Canada, but at the time that's a big part of their worldview, is that uh, 
the world of the Bible and religion and God, that's what matters, and then the secular world is kind of secular. They'll, they'll, they'll work to elect people to, this, to, to, to political office, right, in the same way evangelicals in the U.S. do in a somewhat similar way, but, but what's really important is, is God's will and what the Bible says and not. Um, the world of secularism and business, that's, that's seen as secondary, important, but secondary. Right, so in a sense, it's, it's very socially conservative, but yes, yeah, very much so. But perhaps yeah. then maybe fiscally liberal because, like, smaller liberal because, you know, for a lot of that stuff, social programs are good, generally speaking, if they run well, are, can be helpful to communities. They can help children. They can do all these things. So would they not be in support of those things that maybe fiscally might not line in with a right-wing perspective? Yes. I guess one thing I was trying to do sort of in, in an indirect way and that, that didn't really come off as much in the book as I would have liked is to sort of throw a wrench into these ideas we have of what it means to be left and being right-wing. So to speak right. to, to that question, yeah. yes, you, you'll see some women on the right to support um, what we might see is sort of left-wing liberal measures at the local level. Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, the province who should provide these things, who should provide... Um, for lack of a better term, welfare state measures like money for veterans or money for, for mothers to improve the lives of mothers is the idea. Or again, anti-war, that, that we should be left alone, that war is something that, that is disturbing and just even indeed destroying or attempting to destroy small towns and rural areas. So some ideas that are on, on the left, like we, or we perceive as being on the left, like anti-war and money, money for mothers and veterans, that people women on the right support this. That it should be provided at the provincial level, though as a sort of caveat, not federally. Right. And, and how much that is born out of the experience of not only the Second World War, but the First World War, too, that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I love about studying the 1920s is the, the rush of war memorials that go up in every town across the country because so many young men went and died, and, you know, the, the stories of, you know, every town had somebody who died, and communities really being broken apart because of that. So are these things reactionary to the experience borne out in those two conflicts, or is it relating more, as you said, to the religious side and the idea of just war is wrong and there's a moral element to it? Right, that's a good question. Um, a bit of both, I think, is the answer to that, that in some ways it's a reaction against uh, the perception of, of young men fighting and dying in World War One, World War Two, And when you see Korea and later on Vietnam, jumping ahead a bit, that you find some right-wing women oppose those as well. I mean, Canada doesn't, doesn't have as big a role, certainly in Vietnam as the other wars, but... Uh, it's something that right-wing women strongly oppose, again, as an element of modernity as well. So it's a bit of both. So there's that reactionary sort of element, but yeah. there's an element also of, um, yes, religion, that war is morally wrong, and, and that war is an aspect of modernity, that it creates um, negative, taking young men away from their homes, again, as you noted, and also that it, it war leads to the sense on their part that war leads to big business and modernization, like things like dam building, um, right. Increased mining concerns, and they perceive this as destroying um, this, this, their small community, what, what they see as um, the ideal community, if you will. Right. So essentially, that military, the, the idea of the military-industrial complex, feeding into the centralization and everything else that they have a problem with. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. So they, they would, yes, they would be. They didn't call. They didn't use that term. That's no, yeah. fact that they were going against for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so I also want to ask about the idea of these women on the right being sort of in line, at least on some issues with women on the left, especially as you, as you mentioned, when it comes to the question of war, did they realize this? Like, is, do, do the women themselves, when you're looking at left and right, 
So here's a case where the, the Venn diagram, right, there's a pretty big overlap right. on this issue. Are they coming together in, on certain issues and putting aside the differences on other things that they have? Um, the, sh the short answer is I, I didn't find very much of that. There's only one instance that I found in British Columbia in the 50s. Well, there's a woman, Lydia Arsons, a very eccentric woman, who's an MLA in the Victoria area, er, er, um, area at the time, and she would make common cause with CCF women on, on these issues of anti-war, like putting forward um, proposals and petitions in, inside and outside of the legislature that, that are against sort of anti-war, anti-science, and anti-technology. You find some CCF women and Socred women in B.C., um, have the same kinds of ideas on those issues. It's just in Alberta it was different because it, it's really a one-party province, right? It's dominated by the Socreds from 1935 till the early 70s. And it's right. really hard for any sort of left alternative to creep in, or even small what they perceive as small little liberal to creep in in Alberta. So in BC, yes, a little bit. Um, elsewhere, not, as far as I could tell. Hmm. And what about the issue uh, in terms of culture? Uh, I'm curious about this and listening to you talk too. That it seems like. You know, there were people on the left who similarly were upset with certain things in the culture, you know, whether it be anti-communist propaganda, whatever it was, and people on the right who were concerned with Hollywood, certain radio right. programs as being corrupting influences. That seems like another area where there could be a lot of cooperation between these two sides. It, yeah, right, for sure. And, and I'm just wondering if, if that comes up in the book in any major it, way. It, it does, and there's one chapter on delinquency that discusses I mean, you don't you don't see women, as far as I know, coordinating campaigns together, um, but you do see them having the same kinds of ideas, or issues like delinquency, the perception of the rise in youth crime in the 50s, which is a bit um, of a, an invented moral panic, but they believe it in any case. There's this big that young people lack the values of their elders and are getting involved in right. drugs and sex and drinking and crime in a way that their parents and grandparents didn't, in theory. And they, they and both the left and the right sort of attribute this to new forms of media, like you said, mentioned Hollywood and Americanization, too. And this is, this is a big scare, but crime comic books and crime comic these new forms of media are, are perceived as corrupting young people. And both the left and the right have the same kind of um, discourse on that. This, this is mod modernity, and this is something negative they're receiving seeing americanization creep into canada and this is corrupting young people so they have the same kind of discourse on the left and the right but there's no there's no campaigns as far as i could discern where where they collaborate together but they, they have the same the same kinds of ideas on on that certainly right and it seems like i i'm not to be dismissive of the the people themselves but it seems like the pushback to modernity it comes up all the time, right? Like so, some yeah. of my stuff studying the radio, there were people saying, we don't want radios, this newfangled thing in our house. It's an invasion of privacy, whatever it is. And it, it just feels like, and you see it today with, with, or you saw it in the nineties with the internet today, smartphones, like everything is spying on us. But a lot of it is to me, there's an uncertainty with technology and, and these new modern devices. And a lot of the pushback comes from, older generations and it, it's sort of there's this rhyme in history that this keeps up keep coming up over and over again and I, i'm just wondering with you in, in looking at the idea of these groups both left and right pushing back against modernity did you find that there was a, a trend at least maybe not if you went directly research it maybe in the historiography of people using similar critiques of modernity uh, looking back and finding those same tenets Yes, very. I mean, yes, very much so. I mean, it, it seems to be a trend within modernism and modernization that anti-modernism, that this backlash, this is a big part of um, 
thought, like on the right especially, I guess, politically, but on the left as well, to some degree, there's a sense we want to return to a better time in history when things, whenever that is, and it's always, it's usually rather vague when this right. is, right? Like there's yeah. no, there's no sense we want to return to 1889 or a particular year when things were supposedly better. It's sort of back in the day in the Victorian period or whenever it might be. We we had solid gender roles. We had fewer wars. We had um, a time with less technology. We had a time when, for example, when men on the left, that's the breadwinner ideology that men should work and women should be right. at home and men should make enough money to keep a family. And there's sort of a reactionary element in the sense of wanting to turn back the clock. But some think there was a time, whenever that might have been, when men made enough money to keep women at home. So you see this on the right especially, certainly, and then on the left to some degree. So I mean, in short, yes, this is a key sort of aspect of modernity is, is anti-modernism I've been moved to see. Right. And I guess part of that, too, is sort of with with that, you know, if there's looking back to the good old days where men worked and women stayed at home, you can make a case that that's part of a, the maternal thing as well. Right. Trying to keep families yeah. strong by having somebody at home all the time and taking care of the kids sort of thing. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a reactionary element to that among the women, for sure, that at some point prior to industrialization or on the right or prior to. 1900 that, that women that it was a better time when women um yeah there were more gender roles weren't as fluid i guess they wouldn't have put it that way that's kind of what it was that there right. was a time when men were men and women stayed at home so yes for sure right yeah yeah we're, we're gonna yeah it's the good old days when yes, were the good old sure. days nobody really knows but they no, were for sure, absolutely. they were right. there uh so let's let's shift a bit I, i'm curious uh, to women on the right or excuse me women on the left uh we, we've hinted at it a few times in talking about it but i'm curious to know you know, I'm not certainly an expert in this area, and generally speaking, when I teach about women's issues in, in the post-war period, it's a lot in the context of the 1960s, and in the context of things like the feminine mystique and, and right. that sort of framework. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, how this era contributed to that, or how women on the left were different from that, because... You know, a lot of that counterculture of the 1960s, those people would self-identify as being on the left, certainly. Right. And, and I'm just wondering if there's a, a line from the this post-war period that you found into that stuff that maybe, at least for me, and I, I assume for most people, is where we really associate a strong feminine presence within the left. Right, for sure. I guess the short answer to your question is that the 50s aren't as conservative um, especially on gender issues, as used to be perceived, mm. as historians used to think, I guess that it was sort of it was, and this is maybe this is a bit oversimplified, but it, so the idea was the fifties very conservative. It's leave it to Beaver. It's father knows best. It's these images of women, and, we, and I've shown these in class: women wear, wearing these not very flattering aprons, arguably, yeah. and wearing, with pies, and that kind of that sort of stereotype. But <laughs> yeah. that that's what people associate with the fifties. And I guess um, my the short answer to that is. It's true that media in the 50s did those images are most common for sure. 80, 90 percent of of the actual photos you'll see of the women are of that regard. But the, on the ground, the facts on the ground, if you will, for lack of a better term, are different. That you see in the 50s, there's more and more women working, and because of that, there's more and more women in things like labor unions, and so there's more, so there's more and more women increasingly um, in the in the public sphere, if you will. So, and you do see sort of women making the sort of socialist argument or at least welfare status view even in the 50s saying we need more money we need better wages better conditions we need to be even even sort of small sort of strands saying we need to less what they would call what we would call sort of sexual harassment at work 
small campaigns against that. So you, you do start to sort of, and that takes off, I guess, in the 50s. So you see sort of a labor sort of left, for lack of a better term, one and a half wave of feminism um, right. into the little late 40s and 50s that bleeds, it starts to bleed into the 60s, with so the focus on workplace rights especially. So I get the short answer is the 50s isn't, that sort of image we have of that's not entirely accurate. There's more and more women outside of the home, and some women slowly but surely getting into activism like anti-war, like in the labor movement, that, that starts to bleed into the 1960s. And are these women married or have kids themselves? Because in, I, again, Yes, the, in most cases. Okay, because again, the stereotype would be the women who work in this time would be single women, and, and then you know, social norms would say you get married and you go home right. and have kids and move out to the suburbs. But that's not happening. These are active women in workplaces and coming together who yeah. also have children in in many i mean it's a combination you will see single women but also married women who um who would have kids and you know, they'd work sometimes part-time and you know they'd, they'd find they'd find time for activism things like parent-teacher associations like even right. in the suburbs you see sort of strands of activism although small scale right a little bit i mean i guess in places like it depends sort of where there's sort of a rural urban divide, right, to some degree. Like in places like Vancouver Island that I've done research on, sort of resource areas, northern Ontario, to places like Timmins, you'll see women who play a significant role, in, um, not just in supporting men in the union activities, although that as well, but also leading campaigns for lower prices of milk, for example, and lower prices of things like bread, and there's um, like housewives leagues. There's a big movement for that in the 50s among some groups of women, primarily on the left in this case, you, you start to see that. I think that's sort of a prelude a little bit to the 1960s. On a small, and some of the same people, continue, some same women continue their activism in the 1960s. And where's the pushback coming from then? I mean, obviously, if they're fighting for these things, they want this to happen. Where's the pushback coming from? Is it coming from other people within the community? Is it coming from the men in the community? Or is it a pushback from the people they're fighting against? So if they want unions, they want better pay, is it the companies that are really the, the main driver right. of pushing things back? Okay, I guess the short answer is a bit of both, I guess, more so to the companies and employers who, if, if, if they do want women, they want to keep them at a very, very low wage, bad conditions, so the, the whole cheap labor sort of idea. And you do see some pushback from the men as well, I think, like even men who are on the left or who, who would say they were on the left were often not sympathetic uh, to women's concerns. I get into this in the book and some articles I publish elsewhere. It tended to, tended to be the men which they would give lip service to women's activism, but uh, often wouldn't support it with any money or resources. So it's a bit of both right. the companies and the government a little bit, but uh, from the men as well, even men on the left, unfortunately. And the, the case for that, I assume, for, for the men would be, maybe they wouldn't say this explicitly, but you know, if we give women this, then that sort of lessens my take um, my power. Or... I, I think a little bit, yeah. It was, it was, it was a, yeah, that women were, were getting more and more power, not necessarily better wages, that as well, but more getting more power within society, and this would be taken away from men a bit. I guess, I'm, I guess on the I think in the Communist Party especially, there was sort of a real macho sort of attitude that, that what it really should be, what, who should achieve change in society should be sort of these rough and tough working class men, like miners, loggers auto workers, like what we would, we would gender sort of as very masculinized jobs, for lack of a better term, and, and men didn't like women um, stepping on their toes at, at the workplace or even outside of it, if you will. So there's a real macho culture in, for some sectors of working class men, not all, certainly, but some sectors of the left, for sure. Right, because they're the ones who are building stuff. They're producing, yes. right? And you don't want yeah. a woman there because yes. she's not as strong and it's going to be dangerous. 
Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, yes, for sure. And you see women, so you, as you likely know, in certain kinds of jobs, even in the 50s, right, secretarial work, domestic service, um, okay. textiles. I mean, it's changing a bit, but it's still tended to be, in nursing and teaching, of course, it tended to be these sort of enclaves where you see women changing slowly in the 50s and 60s, but still primarily in sort of five or six different, different job sectors. Right, yeah. Like, there was this great clip that went around this week. Somebody edited out, edited out all the men from Saving Private Ryan. Right, okay. I, I don't know if you saw this. They yeah, edited yeah, out no. every scene that had a man in it, and it was about a two-minute clip. And right, okay. It's, it's, uh, most of it is just outdoors with no one there. And then there's one scene where there's all these uh, secretaries typing letters in this right, okay. And that's it. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was really interesting to me just to sort of see that and sort of that's where all the women are in this yes. frame. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to talk about one of the chapters here is called the well-being of the home depends on the well-being of the yeah. union women only organizations. And again, this is another thing that to me, it seems like the Venn diagram would have a lot of overlap in these yeah. women's only organizations. And I know, you know, the, you've, you've talked about how the goals were essentially to a large degree, there were similar goals but different, perhaps, methods or, or different yeah, approaches. Sure. Uh, with these women-only organizations, are, are you looking mostly at the unions and the, the, the activists in that sense? Or are you also looking at, you mentioned parent-teacher associations and those sorts of groups as well? Right, uh, a bit of both. I guess, in the space for the women on the left, you see them being on in union, women's auxiliaries, in very, very, very common. Um, on the right with SoCreds, they, they, had their, they had their own women's associations that were fairly strong for a while. So women-only groups within, um, the, within the context of this right-wing, fair, uh, at the top level, sort of male-dominated party that was able to sort of carve out some space for themselves, I think, with, within sort of the context of um, a, primary, a fairly conservative male-dominated, what we would see as fairly conservative male-dominated party. And women had, had some ways... It, uh, were in to, to some degree, we were able to shape sort of party policy over issues like fluoride and anti-war a little bit, although the men didn't listen to the women on those kinds of issues as much. So I, I guess my sort of argument there a little bit is that right-wing women played a role sort of in forwarding second-wave feminism, even if that was against what they believed in a lot of ways. They, they sort of implicitly, um, by their actions, if not their rhetoric, forwarded more and more women being outside of the home, even if then when like when second wave feminism rolls around, pro choice, birth control, abortion, like the so-called women are horrified by that. They're quite against a lot of what second wave feminism said they were supporting. But yet, sort of my conclusion was sort of implicitly with with women in these women only organizations. In part, this is this was a way the right right wing women sort of forwarded feminism sort of implicitly, even if that was even if uh, they disagreed with a lot of second wave feminist arguments. Does that right. make sense? Right. Yeah. So by creating a platform. These other yeah. women, the later women are using that platform to advocate things that the earlier women might not have wanted them to advocate for necessarily. Yeah, especially women on the right, for sure, right. very much so. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm curious, you know, and as we're talking, it seems like this is an extraordinarily relevant topic today, I have to say, uh, especially when you talk about the idea of men being, when you, when you mentioned there that there were a lot of men who were supportive only really in a lip service way and yeah. didn't really actually do anything, whether financially or through actual tangible actions. Right. Is this a guide for what's going on today to a certain extent? And perhaps a lesson for men, maybe to read this and see how women were silenced 
or marginalized in this time and maybe use it as a lesson for today? Yes, to some degree, I think, for sure. I mean, what, one of my conclusions that I maybe didn't develop as much as I would have hoped, but that you see, especially in the CCFs, and in the social credit party, definitely, you see the parties were, as a whole were stronger when women were stronger, even if it was sort of women-only groups, that the parties did better, got more votes, more, more, more activity, more supporters, were more in the public eye when the women were strong. So having, having a strong presence for women made the, the sort of parent party, for lack of a better term, stronger. Even the Communist Party, I would probably make that argument as well. The, when the women were visible, they were out there, they were, they were, they, they, when the women got more support and were stronger, it made the parties as a whole sort of stronger. And when you, when you see the women declining, like in the CCF, later the NDP, like in, in the 60s, early 70s even, my sense of it is that when you see women are not being supported, women are not as strong, and sort of the early NDP, the, the, the NDP struggles more so than normally. And the same with the Socrates a little bit. They, start, they sort of die out by the early 70s, and part of the reason, not the only factor, of course, but part of the reason is that women are playing a less prominent role so in, in the part, in the Socred Party. So when women are strong in these parties, the, the parties as a whole do better, sort of electorally and in terms of membership. Right, and, and in terms of the participation, is it is it active participation at the party level, whether nationally, provincially, locally, or is it having women have a forum. So even if even if a woman isn't necessarily a member of the party, like a card carrying member, right, she can go to meetings or rallies or, or whatever it is and have a have a presence and have a say, as opposed yeah. to necessarily being a card carrying member. Right. It, it would be. Yeah, it would be a bit of both. Like it would be, um, both both women being members and being elected to um, the party, the party level, or even as less commonly in those days as an MLA or MP, but also what you're saying, being involved sort of in the grassroots level, coming to a rally, um, so probably to support that. So in both cases, right, when the women are, have a stronger presence, the party as a whole does better. In my opinion, that's sort of what, that was my sort of conclusion in part. Right. So as we, as we turn it forward, the idea now today, I mean, we're not at parity, certainly. You know, no, not at all. Uh, in government, at any level, although there might be some cities I, I don't know enough about municipal politics but there there i'd be surprised if there wasn't at least one city or town that had at least a 50 50 at the very least a 50 50 split uh, yeah i'm sure there are. i can't think offhand unfortunately yeah but but it, at least provincially federally uh, yes we're not there so what lessons can we take them from the 40s and 50s in trying to push that forward to today and trying to get to a point where as you say i mean if parties are stronger with more representation, more equitable representation. Presumably, if, if the parties are doing stronger and, and everything is improving, that's good for the country as a whole. Yes. Uh, even you know, even if you disagree with the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party, whatever it is, having more women involved, having more vigorous debate, and having just a greater representation uh, across the board is good for everybody. What yep. lessons can we take from this post-war period and apply to today? Okay. Well, I guess... A couple of a couple of things. I guess sort of the the importance in a way of um, this this didn't happen as much in history, but sort of cr cross ideological alliances a little. Like we we talked about war, anti-war earlier, and that that's one. I mean, I guess don't don't ignore that someone seemingly on the right or the left might have a similar idea, sort of left-right coalition. Sort of one of the things I concluded at the end of the book is maybe this is a way of. of, of pushing forward an issue, right, whatever it might be, anti-war, safety campaigns, bicycle helmets, whatever, this is a way that the issues of the left and the right can get behind women as well as men in this case. This is maybe one that you don't see all that often that could happen perhaps in, in modern-day politics. And I guess the second one 
this this probably won't be as popular, but I guess my conclusion was that in a way, I think some second wave, old second wave feminists would tell you this too, but in a way, separatism in a sense worked for women. Like women-only organizations were necessary, or predominantly women groups, groups made up primarily of women, were necessary to forward women's issues, right, right? in the sense that these issues would not have been on the table, so to speak, if women's only groups, women-only groups did not push them. That's sort of the... the part of the establishment, for lack of a better term, the same with the Communist Party, too, which was supposedly more on the radical left, didn't push these issues. Um, the, women had, the women had to push it. So, so, so in a sense, um, separatism worked. I mean, it was the same in, this is sort of off-topical, but in second-wave feminism, you found the, the lesbians had to organize on their own, LGBT groups had to organize separately, um, not racial minorities had to organize separately because they weren't initially welcomed in sort of the mainstream Right. The feminist movement, right? And you, you see this a little bit here as well. That the, the the parent party wouldn't push these issues. It had to be. It had to come from the women in groups predominantly um, staffed and led by women. So that, that's something that wouldn't be popular now. That that's kind of what I saw as happening in the 40s and 50s. So that maybe that's worth returning to, like separatism, sort of as a strategy to push forward these particular issues. Right. So it basically, guarantee the platform. Yes, pretty much. It's, yeah. it's just these issues won't become part of it, or they don't seem to, unless they're pushed by these sort of um, not single issue is a bit strong, but groups pushing a particular issue, like like women's and gender issues, like LGBT issues, like racial minority issues. They, they don't get put on the table um, unless a, a group with that specific agenda pushes it. Right. Right. I, I, again, I mean, not not to be dismissive, not to do anything, but right. Yeah. You know, listen to each other and make sure everyone has a voice like yeah pretty much like yeah you know they're pretty straightforward concepts that we can't seem to get right apparently not no yeah. uh which is again more reason to go read the book the book again from left to right maternalism and women's political activism in post-war canada we encourage you to check it out and we are very excited to have had the author brian thorne join us on the phone brian thank you so much for the time today thank you sean i appreciate it thank you very much if you have any Questions or comments for the podcast, History Slam at gmail.com, Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>